0: It's the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. In August, the New England Journal of Medicine published a paper titled Hospital Standards of Care for People with Substance Use Disorder. In it, the authors note that more than 100,000 Americans died from drug overdoses in 2021. It's a staggering statistic. They write, The United States is in the throes of a decades-long exacerbation of drug-related harm. Hospitals are a key domain for implementing person-first, evidence-based interventions for reducing that harm. Yet, despite the obvious need, hospitals have been slow to enact reforms to improve the health of people who use drugs. Dr. Anora Englander and attorney Corey Davis wrote that piece, and they join me now. Welcome to the podcast. So glad you're here.
1: Thanks so much for having us.
0: Great to be here. Your paper um, reminds me a little bit of the Declaration of Independence, insofar as it's a long litany indicting the king and the status quo, and then at the very end, it offers a vision for reform and hope, and I want to get to that vision of a new approach, but I think we have to start where you started, and that's how things are now. What's wrong with the way people who use drugs are cared for in hospitals?
1: There are no incentives, there are no quality measures or financial incentives or otherwise for hospitals to to work towards reform and work towards change. And um, undoubtedly, hospitals have skin in the game in this. There are you know, enormous numbers of patients who are hospitalized with medical and surgical complications of their substance use disorder, and patients have poor outcomes. They have negative experiences. They're often mistreated, um, and there's there are real harms as we describe. There's also missed opportunities in terms of we have effective care for people who struggle with substance use disorders. Um, some of that is helping reduce the harms of use some of that is offering people evidence-based treatment that is can be life-saving treatment. So we have a whole array of tools that right now are are not offered in, in most US hospitals um, and to change that there there are, pockets where there are highly motivated clinicians there are you know physicians who are working towards change nurses pharmacists others and I have the real privilege of working with them around Oregon and around the country however without clearer and stronger incentives that that extend beyond individual hospitals and beyond indiv- individual hospital systems I don't think that as a country we're going to be able to make a change and and there really is um sort of a scientific and moral and ethical mandate that we do that and that we do that now.
0: Yeah, I don't want to overly simplify it. So let me just go ahead and overly simplify it in this question. If there isn't a return on investment that's obvious upfront, uh, it seems like it might be hard to make change in some healthcare settings.
1: I would agree wholeheartedly. And I would also say that there are ways to change the, the conversation such that from an individual hospital administrator's lens you know if we reimburse differently if we restructure differently and start to incentivize change there may be a business case that is clearer and more accessible from from the individual hospital lens as we look at a societal lens there of course is a is a very important quality and financial case to do this but the way that it's structured currently is is setting us up to fail you know i
2: think bringing it back a little bit i mean hospitals are microcosms of the rest of America in a sense, right? And so we uh, primarily, you know, we, we, we have evolved this system whereby people who use drugs are primarily uh, you know, criminalized, stigmatized, um, addiction is often viewed primarily as a moral failure, uh, even among many clinicians, you know, and, and hospitals reflect that, right? So just on, on a practical level, you know, you show up at the hospital, you may have clinicians who are looking down on you, who you can you know, just kind of feel that psychologically, it can also be reflected in the type of care that you receive. Um, as we write in the article, a lot of hospitals, their their actual, you know, stated policy they follow is to basically dehumanize um, people who show up, um a condition, even if it's not related to their addiction, right? You, you fall down, you're in the ED, but it's in your medical record that you, you know, have a substance use disorder. Your belongings may be searched, you know, you may not be permitted to have visitors, you know, all of these ways that make it so you don't even want to go to the hospital in the first place. It's not, it's not a welcoming place, um, you know, and that's, that's absent. Um, I mean that, that's 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 uh, you know related but separate from all of the financial incentives and so on that we're talking about, and those you know in some sense reflect you know they're, they're both um, products of and causes of the way that people you know treat patients and, and the way that patients perceive the experience. So um, I don't know it's it's both complicated and not right. I mean you know the. Um, the system wasn't always set up that way. Um, you know, the, the sort of we have grown up with the sort of war on drugs mentality. So it's, it's been the water in which we swim for so long that yeah. we sometimes, I think, kind of think of it as inevitable or the way that, um, that things are always going to be, um, but it's not the way things have always been, you know, um, it was, um, this is actually you know, relatively recent. Um, yeah, and so it's, it's possible
1: to change it. I'll just add, and I agree, I agree wholeheartedly with Corey. And I also think that there's a way that, and we see this all the time, individual stigma perpetuates and propagates structural stigma. And by structural stigma, what I mean is, I mean you know the absence of of trauma informed and evidence based policies. I mean the absence of prepared clinicians. I mean you know no pathways from hospital to community care all of these system level gaps including the policy and financing gaps but those are perpetuated and propagated by individual stigma and then it's a it's a sort of reinforcing loop that without without those policies in place without those systems in place clinicians feel enormous amount of moral distress there's mutual mistrust between patients and their providers in the hospital And that then worsens the cycle. So again, we've seen in our own experience integrating addiction care as part of our consult service at OHSU that we can disrupt that in many ways. Mm -hmm. And to make widespread systemic change across U.S. hospitals, we really need to invest not only at the individual or sort of individual hospital, individual clinician or individual hospital level, but, but at a policy level.
0: Let's talk about those interruptions and and the successes that you're seeing, but can I just ask one clarifying question? Are we talking about both individuals who have substance use disorder who land in the hospital because of their substance use disorder and people who have substance use disorder who land in the hospital for some other perhaps unrelated ailment and they're substance use is either ignored or downplayed once they step inside the hospital?
1: I would say both. And I would also say that, um, you know, the focus of our piece, and I think the sort of most concerning experience is people with an active substance use disorder. But I also care for patients for whom they've had years of recovery, who may be denied certain surgical or medical procedures, because of a medication that they're on, like methadone or buprenorphine, which are life-saving medications that are stabilizing and supportive. So again, we're we're talking really across the spectrum in terms of um, what people experience. You know, and again, referencing what Corey was saying too, you know, I talk to, to patients and I talk to other friends, friends and family who describe the very common experience of people being really afraid to go to the hospital. For fear that they'll be mistreated, uh, and we just we simply can't have that. Instead, we need the hospital and health systems to be a place where people can can come and express their needs and get the support and care that they need.
0: Yeah, I mean it really does speak to the the lack of trauma informed care if people are afraid to get help that they know they need.
1: Mm-hmm. And often they're not wrong. I mean, you know, they're not wrong to right. to fear that that they will experience stigma or discrimination.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, there's a third category of, you know, people who, and I think Dr. Englander is of really getting at this, you know, folks, you know, not whose substance use disorder is ignored, but people who may not feel that they have and may not have a substance use disorder, who, but who show up in the hospital for something else, and mm-hmm. the you know, clinical staff assume that the problem is that this person has a substance use disorder and, and treat them accordingly and maybe don't probe enough into like well is this actually you know primarily something else or, or, or something else and um, you know just jump to oh well this you know this is a frequent flyer this is an addict and you know therefore we can discount um, anything they say and any other needs um, they might have so that's kind of like a third right. you know, separate but related
0: right. category how could it be better
2: there are so many ways that it could be better.
1: And, um, you know, I think that there are, again, these pockets of examples um, really across very diverse clinical settings in, in, you know, large academic medical centers that may have addiction consult services to emerging work in some of the small rural hospitals that I have the real privilege of working with. Um, but one of the things that I think we see is that we see that having prepared teams, having you know, being able to offer people evidence-based treatment such that we can treat their withdrawal, we can manage their pain, we can talk about cravings, we can, again, um, just really provide those necessary supports and care that treatment changes culture. And um, we've done some work at OHSU interviewing interprofessional hospital staff and asking about their experiences before and after our care team, which is called Impact or the Improving Addiction Care Team, before and after Impact. And, you know, the the stories are remarkable. And again, it's not, we're far from perfect and we have a long way to go. And, um, you know, there's really important differences in clinicians, that moral distress that I described where clinicians just feel so sort of frustrated and, um, there's a sense of futility that's not inevitable, and um, and that can change. And some of you know some many of the people that I work with now describe that their most satisfying patient encounters are working with folks who have substance use disorders. So again, I think it's not inevitable, and um, the climate currently does not support the best care from happening. It's it's more the exception than the rule.
0: Yeah. It would seem that um, having an eye towards life after discharge would be crucial, that you're constantly planning during a hospitalization for what life is going to be like after you're, you've left the hospital.
1: Yes. And I, I guess what I would say is that there's, in terms of the work that we do, our team is a, um, our, our consult service team is a hospital-based team. And so, so much of what we're doing is supporting people through that hospital care um, to to receive the is the care that they need while they're in the hospital. And then we also support people around initiating treatment, connecting to care after reducing the harms of their use. Um, so there's a focus on kind of meeting people's needs during hospitalization and after, um, I think that sort of post-acute care care transition is also a huge area for improvement. There's some sort of really great, uh, emerging work around that. And again, just massive gaps, uh, in terms of, of how we address this broadly,
0: Corey, what do you see as ways to improve things? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot
2: of possibilities. I mean, um, Kirk, you were getting at, it. I mean, incentives matter, right? I mean, we would like to think that everybody is going to do the right thing because it's the right thing, but in uh, you know, in the U.S., um, more so than, than most other places, you know, healthcare is is driven by the profit motive, right? Even non-profit hospitals, um, you know, are out to make money. And, um, you know, partly because of the stigma and, and criminalization that um, has attached to substance use disorder over time, uh, a lot of, you know, um treatment for people with substance use disorder is poorly reimbursed or difficult to get reimbursed at all. Um, you know, so we could, we could change that. Right. We know know from other things, particularly the federal government has done to change the way, um, care is reimbursed. If you want hospitals to provide different and hopefully better care, you can incentivize that by paying for it. And, um, does change practice um, so that's that's one part um i i really do appreciate what dr inguiner was saying about you know how just you know clinicians practice can change by changing clinician practice you know can, can change attitudes um, which makes a practice better which that sort of diffuses out um, if it's an academic hospital that's going to you know sort of uh Diffuse into the trainees and so on. So, I think that's really important. Um, You know, we could, you know, CMS pays for most residency training slots in this country. You know, CMS could require that all residents receive at least a minimum amount of evidence based training in how to treat and prevent substance use disorder, which they they currently don't. You You can graduate medical school. Go through residency, go through fellowship, and never have like real formal training in substance use disorder care and treatment, which is bananas. Given that it's you know as we said, over a hundred thousand people a year are dying. So you know there are, there, are, there are lots of <laughs> there are lots of ways to, to change. Things.
0: We're talking about how people who use drugs are cared for in hospitals. With attorney Corey Davis who directs the Harm Reduction Legal Project at the Network for Public Health Law. He's joining us from Los Angeles, and we're trying hard, Corey, to make your line sound better. Um, Honora Englander is Professor of Medicine in the Division of General Internal Medicine, Section of Addiction Medicine, and the Division of Hospital Medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. Um, I want to go back to the issue of stigma for, for a bit. Um, it feels like it's an immutable force in our society and hard to escape, but it would also seem that it has to be part of the training that caregivers receive that patients are worthy of care and respect regardless of how they present.
1: I think it's partly about training, but again, I think it's really partly about system preparedness. And I think we could and and so, you know, part of what we've done as our with our team is we've integrated peers who have lived experience with addiction and lived experience in recovery as part of our care team. And you know, we peers offer enormous supports to patients who who really build trust based on that shared lived experience. Um, and then they transfer that trust to clinicians who may not have, you know, who, who have a very different relationship and, and often a very different agenda. Um, so they, they really sort of serve as a cultural broker uh, within our care team. Hmm. And I think peers, you know, are, we have students and residents and faculty who learn from our peers um, in ways that are different than the ways in which they learn from me or other physicians on my team or the social workers on my in nurses and pharmacists on my team who all really um, bring a unique perspective. Um, I don't know. I I think it's partly training. I don't think it's immutable. I think it's actually quite changeable Mm -hmm. Um, and it's partly by seeing how people, it's the language that we use when we talk about addiction. It's the assumptions that we make, about what people deserve and what quality care looks like. Um, and it's it's about challenging one another in the space. But I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's just about training, and I definitely don't think that it's immutable.
0: Look, I'm not a clinician. Um, I was raised by two of them, but I've never worked a day of my life in a hospital setting or in a clinic. But I've been a patient, and I've I've witnessed a kind of attitude that you run into I've noticed it in emergency departments and in some surgical settings where there's a sort of gruff behavior exhibited by caregivers. Corey, earlier you refer, you used the language of you know frequent flyers and the way that people are dismissed in some settings. I've seen that happen where you treat people as kind of a problem that you have to deal with, and I. I I wonder about that culture among some caregivers where there's this sort of assessment made where this person isn't worth my time in the same way that some other people might be worth my time.
2: Yes, I mean, I I think about this a lot. Um, I I dabble in academia, right? There's this common trope at the end of an academic article. You always say, well, more research is needed, you know? And, And I'm always the one who's like, well, you know, like a lot of this stuff is actually pretty straightforward. You know, we actually don't, you know, we know about a lot of what works, um, you know, for, for people with substance use disorder. But I actually think that this is an area where more research is needed. How do we change those hearts and minds? Um, and it, it's tough. I mean, so I was um, I was an EMT, right? So, so pre-hospital care, but, you know, you end up hanging around these a lot. And, you know, my experience there was that the leadership, and the mentorship really does matter, you know, um, as an EMT, you're, you're on the bottom end of the totem pole, right? So if, you know, if the paramedic, or, you know, whoever is the officer that you're assigned to, you know, if they are, you know, approaching the patients as like these, you know, this is a person who is deserving of dignity and respect, and we're going to try and help them as, as best we can, with the tools that we have available to us, like, that's the way the team works, you know? And if the person is like, I signed up to be a firefighter and I don't want to be on the ambulance in the first place, um, you know, and and I don't really like these people and I don't like dealing with them and I just want to, you know, get rid of them as soon as I can, well, that's the way the team is going to work. Um, I think the question is, you know, how do you have the first kind and not the second kind? You know, some of that is with recruitment, um, I believe. I mean, it's I, mean, it's, I think that that's really complicated. I think the question of
0: mm-hmm. how do
2: you get a more diverse group of people to be physicians um, is, is much more complicated. It's a lot easier to solve for that problem on some levels where you're hiring EMTs as opposed to physicians. But I think that question of how do we change the beliefs and the, you know, the way that um, clinicians approach the patients in Mm -hmm. general, I think, you know, there's not enough good research on, on that. Um, And I, and my, so like I said, my personal sense is that just the role of that—know if um, mentorship is exactly the right word—but you know, just observation yeah. of what the higher-status people in the organization are doing, and, and some of that can be formalized, and you can and should make you know regulations and policies that you know enforce the kind of behavior that you want to see. Um, but so much of it is just you know you learn by doing I mean that is a lot of medical training (laughs) you know has that as explicit you know so it's so important to have good clinicians how to build them in the first place I I think we don't know enough about
1: I, I think that's right and I think you know in particular as it relates to care of people with substance use disorder and then particularly in hospital settings um I think there are some some challenges that are not surprising, but really helpful to name. And I find myself bringing this up in various contexts. It may be that I'm working with a hospitalist who's struggling about someone's active use in the hospital, and I'm trying to kind of coach them through managing that situation. Or maybe that I'm in a meeting with, you know, larger groups and trying to reshape policy. But I think there's a really lovely piece um, I'm going to, I'm going to get the name perhaps incorrect, but about a clash between harm reduction and medical culture and Chinazo Cunningham, Dr. Dr. Chinazo Cunningham, who's a, someone I admire tremendously is the senior author on that piece. Um, and they really describe how the medical model clashes with a harm reduction model and a harm reduction model at its core really acknowledges and appreciates the individual as the expert in their own life experience. And a biomedical model is all about hierarchy and control, and I think so much of the conflicts that we experience in hospitals are are around that core issue of who's in charge, who has the control, and um, and that's a very unsettling kind of piece that's at play. Mm-hmm again, at an individual clinician and hospital system level. Um, And then you sort of add these external challenges of the way that we approach drugs and drug use in in this country. And it's no wonder that the problems are so kind of, they're they're deep. Um, But I think for me, recognizing that tension and clash between the harm reduction model and the biomedical model in particular in hospitals is really important. I will say that again, thinking back to the role of peers as part of clinical teams and also changing systems, um, we've done some work about around integrating peers into hospitals and it is, it is hard work that requires a lot of, um, I think really a lot of consideration yeah. and it's hard for peers. It's hard for our systems and, um, And it's just extremely valuable work. Um, And part of what peers can do is show us the ways in which hospitals don't hear our patients. It it can change the power structure in a really important way.
2: Um, I also think, you know, it's important to get the right peers. You know, I mean, you have a lot of people who, you know, who come from sort of the 12-step model and, um, you know, know what works for them. And this is not you know, this is universal, right? Everybody thinks <laughs> on some level that my experience is universal and, what worked for me, you know, should work for you. And if it's not, the problem is you. Um, not that, we, you know, we're all different. Um, but just, so, you know, I think it's, it's kind of a similar thing, you know, doing a, a good job of knowing the kinds of um, people that you're looking for, um, and, and and hiring those people, you know, it's not enough necessarily um, to someone, you know, you, you know, it's, there are lots of people who um, have, you know, are in recovery from substance use disorder, who um, have the same kind of, you know, internalized stigma that that other people have, and and that's you know, that's not super helpful.
1: Absolutely, and I I would agree with that completely. And say that, um, again, kind of without infrastructure, hospitals are intense places, (laughs) and uh, you know, supporting peers to be most effective, hiring for the right peers, and then supporting them to be the most effective is, again, another huge space where we we don't have enough experience.
0: Yeah, I think one takeaway has to be. Almost in any environment where there's a hierarchical mentorship going on, never to downplay the importance of a mentor glaring at someone and saying, we don't treat people that way. One intervention that's as simple as that can change the way people start to behave in an environment where they're learning. I mean, I've witnessed that in a newsroom.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I don't want to you know, overplay it. I mean, I do think that you know other incentives matter and, 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 and so on. But yeah, I mean, I I definitely agree with that. I mean, some of that is just you know just the leadership. You 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 know you see how their you know supervisors the people you're supposed to be learning from act and you internalize that either because you know you just think that that's the way it should be or because you're um, promotion (laughs) and your happiness in the workplace (laughs) depends on, you know, you you pleasing um, the people that you report to. Um, But I agree with that. I mean, I think that, you know, in some of the more Mm -hmm. egregious non-clinical things like we we talked about in the article about how, you know, it really is the case that um, a lot of hospitals have explicit policies to discriminate against people who have substance use disorder or mm-hmm. using drugs to really, you know, dehumanize them, yeah. you know, to treat them not only differently, but worse than other patients in the same hospital. I mean, that's policy. You can change that. Um, either administrators, physician leaders, nurse leaders. I mean, nurses have an enormous amount of um, sway in how the actual hospital operates, um, you know, and that can be changed um, through, changing policies and procedures and the wagging of the finger. It's, it's both.
1: It's, it's much more than bad behavior. Again, it's these reinforcing system-wide gaps. Um, and some of the bad behaviors are a result of those, you know, there are many, many hospitals that have no, people are not allowed to leave there to go smoke. And for some people, a cigarette is what allows them to stay in the hospital. And of course there are health harms from smoking cigarettes. And, um, you know, we sort of often, I think in particular around people's substance use, where again, the system does not acknowledge that people are maybe using drugs to self-manage a lot of other distress. And so we strip away those coping mechanisms and we don't offer any replacement. And we then punish people for the inevitable consequence of that. Um, it's just really, again, a very layered and I think there are some really concrete things that we can do differently, you know, without an act of Congress or with an act of Congress, but that we can do um, and need to do. Yeah.
0: How is your your piece has been out for a little over a month, I think now? Um, how has it been received? What are you hearing from your colleagues?
1: I've had really lovely reception uh, across. Nobody's reached out to me with any negative comments. Um, and, um, and instead, you know, the CEO of my hospital sent an email sort of saying, I hope that we're doing everything that we can do here. Um, I'm working with, you know, there's been a, there's been, and that's, that's of course at just one hospital. Um, and, and there are ways that we can improve in my hospital and in our health system. Um, but then more broadly, I have not, um I've actually not connected with policymakers yet and hope to and have have sent it to some of them and kind of hoping to move that forward. But from lay people and clinicians and, and hospital um, administrators, I've had a lot of really positive feedback. So really hoping to engage again that next level.
2: Some of this stuff is really hard. You know, some of it is complicated, but some of it isn't, right? You know, there is a lot of stuff that is so basic, so Clearly wrong, um, and, and relatively easily changed. So it's my hope is that we'll see, you know, in some little way, <laughs> you know, this this paper will help nudge um, policymakers uh, in, in the right direction. Yeah.
1: You know, I, the other thing I'm struck, I feel like saying, and is just that I think by investing in focused work to improve population health for hospitalized people with substance use disorder we can raise the bar for everyone. You know, I think what you're describing of that experience being frightened in an ED or an operating room and not sort of feeling like you as an individual matter is someone, you know, that again I don't I don't want to draw too much from what you're saying, but that's an experience that anyone can have regardless of whether or not they have a substance use disorder. Yeah. And I think by improving systems for our most vulnerable patients who are systemically marginalized through all of these systems, we can make care better for everybody. Right. Um, we train better. We build better systems. We train better staff. We have better culture that does raise the bar for everyone. So again, I think it's not the primary argument or reason that you do this work, but I think it's a potential side effect. That's a very welcome one Yeah, um, because that dehumanization yeah, you know, that, that harms everyone in in a way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the fact that it feeds back into how you practice the next time around with the next patient, that it it does create this this loop of this feedback loop of, you know, I'm gonna decide at the outset of the encounter whether I like this person or not and whether they're deserving of my best care and all of me being present to them. Yeah, and we're gonna talk
2: about this forever. I mean we didn't you know um, like clinician burnout is a real thing. I mean, it is, I mean, whatever. Obviously, physicians off, you know, occupy a very privileged place in society. And it is also the case that it can be very difficult <laughs> to be a physician. You're being asked to do a million things and you don't have any time to do any of them, right? And um, it's, it's a lot easier. I mean some patients you know i don't want to put this in a way that sounds like it's it's blaming because i don't mean it that way but like people with substance use disorder sometimes like need a lot of complicated care like it can be hard to work with them and i don't mean that in a blaming way I just mean like like sometimes you've got a lot of stuff going on and they're just not only literally the resource but you just don't have the time like even if you want to you know spend a lot of time with this patient really figure out you know what are all of the things that you need help with you know how can i connect you like you literally do not have time to do that like it is literally there's just the time is just not there you need to move on um you know so that again like i said this is like a microcosm of (laughs) of all of the other problems that exist anyway that's like that's not that's not specific use disorder, substance use disorder, you know, that's true of, of a lot of patients. Um, but, you know, um, so some sort of systemic reform, I mean, obviously, population health reform um, is necessary, but just even in the hospital context, you know, giving more thought to how can we try to treat the whole patient, you know, follow them throughout their disease course, throughout the life course, you know, as opposed to just like, what are the DRGs for this patient and how can I like get them out of my little, (laughs) little silo and either out of the hospital or into somebody else's silo. I mean, that is not specific to substance use disorder, but it definitely doesn't, doesn't help. And it's, you know, um, it can, the system is not designed to encourage oftentimes, you know, empathetic um, understanding care you know, even if you want to provide that, again, like, I'm not trying to make excuses or whatever, but like, no, it's it's, just, it's hard. <laughs>
1: well, it's hard and the policies make it worse. The conflicts that staff go experience because, you know, because they don't have the training or they, you know, or the policies are bad. Those conflicts are what sometimes what our team spends the most time addressing it's not the conversation at the bedside about how do we support you around your craving or your pain or your withdrawal that takes the, the you know, that's the sort of the angst or the distress. It's those conflicts. And those conflicts, again, the system is, is largely contributing to those conflicts. Um, and it's those control battles that, that I think are often unnecessary and avoidable.
0: I think you've given people lots, lots to think about and almost a blueprint of how you could go forward. So congratulations on that.
2: Well, thank you. Thanks for having us on.
1: Thanks a lot. It was fun.
0: Corey Davis directs the Harm Reduction Legal Project at the Network for Public Health Law. He was speaking with us from Los Angeles. Anora Englander is Professor of Medicine, Division of General Internal Medicine, Section of addiction medicine and the division of hospital medicine at the oregon health and science university in portland their paper hospital standards of care for people with substance use disorder was published august 25th in the new england journal of medicine you'll find a link to it on our website hearmenowpodcast.org heads up if you don't have institutional access know that The paper is behind a paywall, but if you register for a free Nijim account, you'll get access to two subscriber-only articles each month, plus whatever the editors put in front of the paywall. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring on the web at hearmenowpodcast.org. The program is produced by Melody Fawcett and Scott Acord. We have absolutely invaluable research help from medical librarians, Carrie Grinstead, Seema Bakhta, Amanda Schwartz, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Our next program is coming to you in three weeks. Until then, be well.